What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. I'm Stacey Marie Ishmael, Managing Editor of Crypto for Bloomberg News. And this is Bloomberg Crypto, a daily Bloomberg iHod podcast. It's Friday, March 3rd. Friday, which, as always, means it's time for another episode of This Week in Crypto. Happy as always to be joined by Bloomberg Senior Editor Dave Litka and by Emily Nicole. Dave is based with me here in New York and Emily is in London. On this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about a pretty somber anniversary, the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and what, in addition to all of the devastation that that has meant for Ukraine's economy, people and landmarks, has to do with crypto. We'll talk about Nishad Singh, an FTX lieutenant who pleaded guilty to various crimes in court in New York this week. And we'll talk a little bit about what's happening with Marathon, a Bitcoin miner, and what, if anything, accounting and the rising price of Bitcoin have to do with the prospects for the sector. Emily, Dave, welcome back to the podcast. Great to be here. Before we go into what's been happening in, in Ukraine, to Emily's point, Dave, I want to ask you about what has become one of our favorite topics on this podcast, which is the state of Bitcoin mining. Yes. Which varies from like very precarious to precarious. <laughs> I think very precarious right now. This week we had a bit of news. Marathon Digital, one of the biggest miners out there, was supposed to report earnings this week. Mm -hmm. And at the last minute they said, we're not. Uh, we have to restate a bunch of our financials from prior quarters. Now, that seems unusual and or bad. It could be on it. So it's the the whole Bitcoin in industry, including the better known MicroStrategy, have had an issue with how gains and losses are accounted for on their financials. Mm -hmm. And basically, the way the rules are set up, they can't account for any gains, but they have to write down losses, okay. their holdings. So it brings a lot of volatility to their numbers. And there are proposals out there to make this a little more workable. But until then, it kind of distorts the numbers a bit in terms of gains and losses that they have to report. But in the case of Marathon, it's, it's how they recognized um these adjustments and also revenue mm -hmm. in, in regard to a mining pool. Even just as interesting in one aspect of this market is that the stocks have taken off this year. They've been some of the best performers out there, which has helped the distressed ones to buy more time for themselves. Right. Because they're kind of the perception is that they're going to be able to get out of this particular crypto winter and survive. That is. And they have huge obligations they owe, owe to lenders. For a while there, they were giving back machines. And if nobody wants to buy or mine or buy Bitcoin, why do you want to mine it? But in this case, they're able to now have a negotiating point with the equity stake. So if we can give you a stake when the stock's mm -hmm. rising, then you feel a little better about it. 
And so, Dave, to that point, you know, you've had this appreciation in the share price. How much of that has to do with the fact that crypto prices themselves have been rallying? A lot. And that that does make there is the interrelationship there where if the price of Bitcoin is going up, you're going to feel better about a, a miner. But mm-hmm. some people have also characterized um, these companies as um, narrative stocks <laughs> on it. So if you're selling that narrative that Bitcoin is back, then you're going to buy them. But in the end, these guys have to pay their bills and they're public companies. And it's a little more complicated than just um, riding the, uh, the highs and lows of Bitcoin. At this point, I just want to share one of my favorite random facts about Bitcoin miners, which is that there's a company called TerraWolf, which has, for reasons that were never entirely clear to me, two celebrities among its backers, and they are Gwyneth Paltrow and Mindy Kaling. That is your random fact of the crypto day. <laughs> if anybody knows if Gwyneth Paltrow and Mindy Kaling have bias remorse about TerraWolf, like crypto at Bloomberg.net, very interested in, in that follow-up. Now, we just talked about two celebrities, but for a lot of people who are paying close attention to crypto, and even people who aren't paying that close attention to crypto, there are a few more names that now come to the fore when we talk about the events of 2022. And obviously, Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX were among the biggest, but certainly one of the developments we've been paying close attention to is what's been happening to the other members of the so-called FTX inner circle. And one of the folks on that list is Nishad Singh. He was the director of engineering at FTX. He was one of the folks who lived in the famous, infamous, depending on your perspective, Bahamas compound. And what happened this week is that he, in a New York court, agreed to plead guilty to various allegations against him. And that's a criminal court. And at the same time, he was hit by you know, effectively like lawsuits from the Securities and Exchange Commission and the SEC. Emily, what what are the numbers that we're talking about here when it relates to Nishad Singh? So to put this into perspective, you've got like FTX owing its customers roughly, you know, $8 billion in total. And we're not too sure, you know, how much SBF finally made away with, but his bail, for example, was $250 million. That's what that was set at. Uh, Nishad Singh's bail is set at one one thousandth of that amount (laughs) Um, closer to you know the tens of thousands rather than the millions of dollars and the lawsuits against him accuse Singh of taking about six million dollars for personal use from FTX and that's to pay for things like houses to do things like donate to charity and his top donations to charity actually went to a charity run by Sam Bankman-Fried's mum and also there was a little bit of you know, like insight into exactly where he was spending some of the money that was coming from FTX as well. For example, he donated about $9.3 million to Democratic candidates and committees since 2020. Mm-hmm. $8 million of that was just in the last election cycle. And so, you know, he, he knew about these things going on at Alameda and FTX for months, supposedly. That's what he said in his own statements. He says he was aware of everything that was happening and just turned a blind eye, willfully misstated revenue figures to auditors um, mm-hmm. and all because that was the only way they could see FTX continuing to stay afloat. And to your point about the willful misstatement, he also said he apologized, right? He, I quote, said, I'm unbelievably sorry for my role in this and the harm it caused and giving some specifics and then, you know, saying I knew my conduct was wrong, which is, of course, 
a clear, you know, he's admitting guilt, he's pleading guilty. Sam Bankman-Fried has denied all of the charges and the accusations against him and has not pleaded guilty uh, and is currently out on bail. This marks the third member of the FTX-SBF inner circle to plead guilty in an apparent, you know, cooperation agreement with prosecutors, the first two being Caroline Ellison, who was first the co-CEO and then the CEO of Alameda Trading, and Gary Wang, who was, in addition to being a childhood friend of Sam Bankman-Fried, was the chief technology officer at FTX. Yeah, it's pretty obvious that the reason why U.S. authorities are agreeing to do these plea deals with the likes of Nishad Singh and Gary Wang and Caroline Ellison is because not not only did FTX not really keep track of anything, so you really do only have the words of people to go on when trying to to figure out what happened here. There's no paper trail to look at. With SBF pleading not guilty and denying everything that's been thrown against him, it's going to take a very strong case to be able to carry out some of the lawsuits that have been put against Sam and put against the criminal charges that he's facing. And so basically getting all of his friends and closest employees to, to flip on him is the strongest tool in the SEC's wheelhouse at the minute. After Russia invaded Ukraine, you had two conversations about crypto happening simultaneously. This idea that the philanthropic community in crypto could be rallied to donate funds, not just to ordinary people in Ukraine, but also to the government, and the fear from various regulators and central banks that crypto could be used as a means for Russians who were facing sanctions to avoid those sanctions at the same time. So it's now 12 months on. We can do a little bit of a retrospective about how the year went, you know, how successful were crypto exchanges at limiting the access of sanctioned Russian individuals to to trade on their exchanges, how successful were the attempts to help support the effort in Ukraine by crypto companies wanting to to be on the other side of the equation. And some of the data that's come back hasn't necessarily been all that positive for the overall impact. But at the same time, efforts to stop Russian exchanges from, from being able to trade with international exchanges to stop stop Russian individuals from being able to trade on international exchanges, those weren't as successful. There was some data coming out at the end of February from the US-based research group TRM Labs, which said that Russian-based exchange Garantex more than doubled its volumes between February 2022 Hmm. and February 2023. And that's with it being sanctioned by the US in April. So, you know, 10 out of the 12 months, it was a sanctioned entity. And yet it still more than doubled its volumes while other crypto exchanges, as we know, have faced a pretty dour environment over the last year. A lot of demand has fallen off a cliff. So it's a pretty different picture. And overall as well, the the amount of crypto that was going towards illicit activity in the last year, uh, according to Chainalysis, another analytics company, rose for the first time since 2019. So it's more than doubled in the last year to 0.24%. Obviously, that's still a tiny percentage if we think about the entire crypto market. Mm -hmm. But the fact that it's going up shows that Russia definitely still had access to, to what it needed to access in crypto when being cut off from the rest of the international payment system. And there was even another report, crypto companies love reports, but there was another report that also came out in February from an analytics firm called Inca Digital, alleging that non-Russian exchanges allowed people who had debit cards issued by sanctioned Russian banks to still participate in transactions on those exchanges. 
Yeah, it's worth noting that some of those exchanges like Huobi, like KuCoin, like Binance, most of them have denied those reports. If not, they didn't respond. But most of them said, you know, this isn't true. We don't accept users from from Russia. We don't accept users with bank cards from those sanctioned banks. Reports are reports and they're usually based on data. And if, if it is true that these things have been going on, then it obviously provides more insight into just how much it is really a difficult job for regulators to be able to see what's going on at crypto exchanges. There are already concerns even before the war that crypto exchanges can often be like a black box that regulators just don't get to see into. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if this is still going on, even with most of the world issuing sanctions against Russia, it definitely proves their point. We'll be right back with more from Bloomberg's Dave Litka and Emily Nicole. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Dave, there's something I want your perspective on as, you know, a person who has been paying close attention to this asset class for such a long time. It still blows my mind how this industry is trying to simultaneously argue it is against government control. It is for freedom. It is for the ability of people to, you know, do their thing individually. But also they're like, but also we definitely don't allow people on government lists (laughs) to participate in this ecosystem whatsoever. Like, how are folks trying to walk that line between not getting completely shut down by the U.S. government while appearing to espouse the libertarian ideals of Bitcoin and the blockchain? That's the fine line that these exchanges and, and companies have been walking since really the beginning of this industry on it. I think you're seeing the consequences of that now in the broader crackdown, whether it's sanctions here or just the regulation of products that people should or shouldn't be offered, uh, according Mm -hmm. to the government, which is basically there to serve the people. Yeah. And the point about, you know, the difficulty of knowing who someone is, for some people, that's a feature, right? Like they don't want you to know who they are because they don't trust their government or they don't trust those banks or they don't trust that exchange necessarily. But of course, if you are a government or a regulator, you're just going to look at that and say, well, exchange, then you're not being compliant with know your customer rules. I mean, it's literally in the name, know your customer. You're not being compliant with anti-money laundering. And, you know, for some folks, that's the argument for them for why they're like, well, OK, like, let's do let's go to DeFi. Let's go to the, the really decentralized places where I don't have to tell somebody what my name is or provide my passport or my carte d'identité or whatever those things are. Emily, are you seeing real evidence that that's a like a sustainable proposition for people to move to something that's much more technically complicated if they want to avoid more onerous data provision requirements? It's been a difficult thing to monitor over the last year because with crypto being down everywhere, mm-hmm. it's hard to know whether decentralized exchanges are getting hit better or worse than those that are centralized exchanges and ultimately a lot of people do move 
their funds between lots of different exchanges at once. So you can't even necessarily say, okay, you prefer this or you prefer that because traders who are native to crypto will use multiple exchanges for one journey. What we do know, however, though, is that decentralization is becoming a much harder ideal for firms to achieve. And in some ways, it does look like companies are starting to think, well, maybe perhaps it's not possible to achieve true decentralization and perhaps there's like a level that we can be comfortable with. So for example, in the end of February, we saw a decentralized lending protocol called Oasis comply with a court order to use a backdoor in its code that would allow it to seize some funds that were uh, stolen from a platform last year called Wormhole. And Oasis was very clear in the way that it spoke about it because it wanted to make sure that users didn't think that it already knew about that backdoor and its code that would allow to do that because that's the opposite of decentralization, right? Let alone complying with a court order. But there's an element now of like, well, surely it's a good thing, right? That you were able to get funds back from a hacker and surely it's a good thing that we were able to comply with regulations where we're able to. And so now there's more of a debate about, you know, what level are we comfortable with? How yeah. much decentralization is truly possible? And how, what will that look like going forward? Dave, just as a kind of a closing thought, because, you know, it's this week in crypto, as we look forward into the last month of the first quarter of the year, are there any big top line numbers, kind of metrics that people are looking at to try to see if they should be happy or sad <laughs> about where we are? Sure. It's, it's an interesting time for the market. You had the January rally which crypto bounced almost 40% and got everybody saying, or enough people saying crypto's back. And that kind of stalled in February. Mm -hmm. As we go into the March period now, it's the big question is where we go. And we were looking at actually some of the, the positioning in the open interest options market on it. And uh, the big number that stood out was 30,000, um, which this market loves around numbers. So <laughs> it's a good target. It's an easy target to put up there when you're trading below around 25,000. But interesting, we saw also that the, uh, to get technical, something called implied volatilities down for these options, which means that people are kind of losing interest on mm. it. And what that means for the people who actually bought those call options is that the value of the options have dropped since they purchased it. It's kind of looked at as the negative sign, but that's kind of been the, the sentiment for the past eight months, really. So if I were to summarize that for somebody who is either not a financial reporter or does not know what options are, it would be, if things go above $30,000, a lot of people will be happy. The problem is fewer and fewer people are actually buying and selling right now. Exactly. Well, on that extremely mixed note, like, thank you both for being here. Appreciate it, as always. Pleasure. Thanks for having us. That was Bloomberg senior editor Dave Litka and Bloomberg reporter Emily Nicole. You can find more of their work on the Bloomberg Terminal and on Bloomberg.com. And of course, check out our twice-weekly newsletter, Bloomberg Crypto. This is Bloomberg Crypto, a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Send us your comments, questions, or suggestions for the show to crypto at Bloomberg.net. The supervising producer of Bloomberg Crypto is Vicky Vergolina. Our senior producer is Janet Babin. Our producers are Mohamed Farouk and Sharon Bariro. 
Our associate producers are Ty Butler and Moses Undum. Desta Wonderad is our engineer. Original music by Leo Sidron. I'm Stacey Marie Ishmael. We'll be back tomorrow. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.